0: Yeah, I'm Jackson. I have zero experience
1: with carpentry. I studied at a school for historic preservation in Boston and learned about how
2: things were built, you know, 250 years ago. There's a long way to go. I'm nowhere near the top. Not that I thought I was, but there's so much more to do out there.
0: Welcome back to the Passion for Craft podcast. Today, we've got a very special guest, Gary Katz. And uh, Brent, would you like to introduce Gary?
1: Yep. Gary, a uh, longtime friend, uh, 20 plus years, I think um, we've recorded video together, but you are, I think, or Gary is the godfather of, of video trim carpentry, teaching, sharing. I mean, you were the original and the master, a huge, huge respect for Gary, his love for architecture, uh, his love for craft, his love for what we do. And so, Uh, Gary Katz, welcome to the show. The Godfather.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Brent. Thank you very much.
1: Well, we're excited to have you here. I guess, you know, I've told the story a number of times about your kind of background into teaching. And and what I'm encouraging people to do oftentimes is is to practice in a number of different areas, practice in commercial, practice in residential, practice the high-speed stuff, practice the high-end stuff. And so really I want to give people chance to get to know you, but also just kind of your secret sauce to success. Um, And in that, I remember your stories about trimming out apartment buildings and, you know, the speed that you had to learn and, you know, what you learned in that process. Can you tell everybody about that?
3: Um, I think the first thing everybody has to learn is how to fail and enjoy it.
2: Nice. You know, because if
3: you don't, if you don't enjoy it, then you don't learn from it. And almost everything we do in the field is pretty much not all of it, but most of it is learned through failure. And and the apartment building thing is a really good example of it because we really didn't know what we were doing when we took our first big building. I think it had like a hundred units or something like that. And you know, we had to we had to think or swim right away. And we failed a little bit at the beginning using techniques that we'd used in custom homes that you just can't You can't do because you're getting paid six or seven dollars a pre-hung door you're getting paid 20 or 30 cents a foot for baseboard you're getting 10 dollars a shelf for closeting you know closets and stuff it's just like you can't afford that so you've got to come up with really like you have to really think about it and that's the cool part about i think our our profession you really have to learn from your mistakes and you have to be constantly examining what you're doing and it's like self-examination. It's like the best part of life in a way. You know, you, you look at your procedures or your, or your methodology, you know, if you're into like lean philosophy where you're constantly trying to eliminate waste and, and kind of like uh, smooth out the wrinkles and stuff like that. That's, that's what the finished thing was all about. We figured out how to measure closets very quickly with a stick. You know, we ended. We figured out <laughs> systems for scattering pre-fit doors and installing them really fast. You know, we, we figured out just a, a lot of stuff the hard way, but we turned it into a really profitable business. And I think it was really important because when, we, when the, the economy changed and we started doing more custom homes, you know, first there were tract homes, which really was really helpful having done the apartment buildings. But then when we started doing custom homes, we started integrating some of those same production techniques when we were doing custom high-end work. And and it was effective, and it, it made the whole job site more efficient, more productive. It made all of us feel more confident, you know, and secure, and it pleased our clients and our contractors that we worked for. So, you know, I really believe you're right. You've got to stick your foot in everything, not just your toe, you know, you got to go all in and do the production work, and do the remodels, and do the new construction. You know, as well as you know, and you and I'll, I'm sure, get into this subject, as well as study the the cat, the craft, the architecture, the the history. You know, and have an appreciation for that too.
1: Well, I think you were you beat me to the punch on on that, and we can talk about that later because I remember listening to you and and reading your stuff, talking about neoclassicism and the classical styles and all that different stuff so we can get into that but let's go back to the, you were paid six bucks to hang a door i mean wow that is <laughs> that is <laughs> wait can we talk about i i don't understand the pricing that's not hanging a door that's a that's a prefit door okay still that's not very much yeah, jackson we could, we, <laughs> we, wait wait we how does that $10 work dollars for hanging the door so so basically is
0: it like a speed thing like how fast you can get everything done is is how much you get paid so they just basically look at the end product and go all right you got 30 doors in today you get 30 times 7 210 dollars." is that how that works something like
3: that when you bid the job you don't bid it by man hours you bid it by piecework you know wow. you bid it by how many doors are in the whole building you know there's there's 100 units and there's six doors in a, in a unit, you know, plus the entry door. And the entry door was always a hang. So like I said, you get 10 bucks for the hang. And <laughs> we couldn't do that. We didn't know how to, how to hang doors that quickly. So we hired that out to a professional door hanger. And that was just like one of the thrills of my life, watching that guy <laughs> hang
1: doors. Yeah. Really? Tell us about that.
3: There was a family, the um, Shaper brothers, there were there was al and royal primarily royal hung all the doors in the residential construction job sites that we worked on and al worked on all the commercial buildings because al was a real thinker he liked to make um jigs and fixtures he used a lot of routers he had a cart that he'd wheel through the building with a with a vise on it and a sharpener and all kinds of sharpening stuff for drill bits and putting in panic hardware and all that stuff, you know, electric locks when they were first coming out and Royal was just a beast. You know, he, he just hung like maybe 35, 40 doors a day alone. Solid core 3068 legacy solid core doors, half of them on the second floor. So it was like, (laughs) you know, all of the techniques we saw him using were just killer my brother and I used to watch him, and he was such a sweet guy, you know? He had the dirtiest mouth you can imagine. but <laughs> he was such a sweet guy. He'd let us stand there and watch him for hours. And he'd say, and we'd go, "Whoa, well, what's that on your skill saw, you know? And he had this little piece of metal that he screwed to the front of his skill saw, and it was bent over. And it bent over and came down right next to the blade, in line, in line with the blade. So as he was cutting, it was scoring the door. So he didn't have any tear out when, his, when he cut a door, when he cut wow. the top of the bottom of the door, just because of that little piece of metal. So it eliminated him having to throw a straight edge down and pulling out a utility knife. He just whacked the door off with that skill saw, and he pushed that saw just as hard as he could.
2: You know, I love He could that.
3: actually slow a door saw down, yeah.
2: In that world you're describing, that sounds like a boot camp for just efficiency, like you had to just, if you wanted to make any money, you had to figure it out and figure it out quick.
3: It, it was sink or swim. Absolutely. You know, when we went in and bid our first um, apartment complex, the owner of the door store that, you know, we were actually working for, because at that time they, large contractors subbed out both material and labor to one outlet. And it was usually the door supplier and this, in this case, it was Union Door and Hardware, and we sat in Bob Rangel's office, and my brother and I said "Give us." – I've told this story so many times, I feel like an idiot repeating it. But <laughs> my brother said to him, okay, Bob, give us the plans. We'll take them home. We'll work up some bids, and we'll get them back to you, but thanks so much for the opportunity. And Bob leaned back in his chair, you know, and he looked at us, and he went, that's not the way it works, boys. <laughs> and then we both looked at him like, what are you talking about? And he said – Here's what we're going to pay you, and he handed us this sheet of paper, and it was $6.50 for a pre-hung, $0.10 a foot for baseboard. There was no bid. You know, you took the price, or you didn't take the work. Wow. That was it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that really forces your hand on the uh, efficiency angle, right?
3: Yeah.
1: Absolutely. It's sink or swim. Absolutely. Uh, how long so it's a hundred units in that apartment. Uh, how long did it take you to do get in and out of? Was that a month or was that like three months or
3: It took us I'd say by the time we were a quarter of the way through the first project, we had systems in place that kept our guys moving, moving, moving. And by the time we were about halfway done with that project, we were starting to establish um, kind like of like an esprit de corps you know, among our crew, we, we had a system where nobody was allowed to pick up a tool until everything was scattered into every single unit. All the pieces for the closets, all of the doors, all of the extra casing, all of the, you know, all of the jams and stuff for the, for the by, bypass doors, all of the track, everything for every single unit. And then we'd spread hoses for air because this was way before cordless tools. We'd spread all of our hoses and we'd spread power. And there'd be like six of us on the crew and each of us would go inside of a unit at the same time. And that was one of the real brilliant things that we came up with because everybody started competing with each other. Oh yeah. And my brother would go through, my brother would go through every single unit and look at every single door, every single piece of base, everything to make sure it was done very nicely before you'd sign off on it. So it was like, it was really a cool system. Everybody enjoyed it. You know, we had a good time. The days went by really quickly.
2: I just imagine sawdust, as soon as it's like, go! And then it's just sawdust flying, guys running around. Yeah, you're looking through the hallway, sawdust yeah. is
0: flying out of each room.
2: <laughs> what, what was your next step from those apartment complexes to, like, the home side? Was that, was that the next step?
3: It was about that time that we started doing commercial buildings, too and um that was a whole different game and sometimes we'd do commercial buildings and we'd work in them at night because you couldn't work in them during the day and because there are people working in the offices and mm. excuse me for my dog <laughs> somebody at the door I'm the he's morning. happy about something but, um we do all the all the commercial work at night sometimes we'd work from like six in the evening until about three in the morning go home take a quick nap you know make your lunch and then go off to the residential jobs.
1: that's a young man's game it feels like right that 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 hustle and that kind of uh you know you can't do that when you're you know 50 i don't think uh maybe your your buddy who was hanging the doors did it better than i could the um but then when did you start teaching when did you start sharing you know kind of the 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 all the videos you did for taunton and for for all the different groups like that i mean when did you start doing that when did that teaching career start?
3: I started writing for Fine Home Building in 1994 and um, wrote a couple of articles on, on hardware, on door hardware, you know, locks. On um, It was kind of really, you know, your first article for Fine Home Building is, you know, I don't know, it's like your first girlfriend in a way, you know, it's just, <laughs> something you just don't forget, you know? It's, it's a big deal. with you and, the folks at Taunton asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book, so I wrote the Door Hangers Handbook. And then, about oh maybe a year later, I got a phone call from Craig Savage, and who you know, you know, he's a good friend of Craig Flynn's.
1: Absolutely. And
3: Craig was, yeah, Craig was running JLC Live pretty much. He was the he was the idea man, you know, behind JLC Live. And he said, hey, we want you to come and do these shows and hang doors for people you know in front of an audience can you do that and i thought yeah i think so and that's how that started
1: yeah and what's that acronym journal of light construction it's a it's a it's a great magazine it still is but you know it's they have a live event where a bunch of people come and and show drywall and they show trim they show framing they show all these different things so it's a So you were the carpentry guy he was the door hanger and then and then I I
3: was among there was a group of guys maybe 10 guys that did framing and and uh, myron ferguson was doing drywall and you know there were there were several writers from fine home building. Rick Arnold was, you know, a, one of the head, one of the big presenters at JLC. You know, there was just a, a there was a, a this is where I met Jed Dixon. It just, that really changed my life. Mike slogan guys that taught me, you know, stuff that I couldn't learn on my own that I couldn't, my brother wasn't even, because my brother really wasn't a cutting edge carpenter. He liked the old techniques and, and I learned from these guys how to use a calculator, you know, it's just can <laughs> change my whole life, you know, because I was always math challenged. And, and Mike Floggett and Jeb Dixon were incredibly patient year after year after year. We'd see each other at these shows and every single time they'd try teaching me the same stuff, you know, because <laughs> I'm so challenged with math. But it finally got through, you know, finally, really, I've really learned some stuff from
2: well, Brent was kind of saying earlier, you're the godfather, and now I, you know, young guy like me who you know goes on the internet and types in something, carpentry related. I mean, you're the one that comes up. How to hang a door? How to do crown molding? It 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 was always you. So, one thing I liked about the way you did stuff was that you were always so methodical. Like you you just, it was just no fluff this is like this is what you're doing this is how to do it and now hearing your story about the kind of efficiency boot camp and everything you've been through it it makes sense why you're you've mastered the trade really
3: well we had guys that worked for us you know and I think that was a large part of how the methodology evolved when you have a crew you have to teach them how to do stuff and you learn real quick that you can't allow anybody to do stuff different than the way everybody else is doing it. Everybody's gotta have the same step-by-step system for everything in order to be seriously efficient and to make sure that you don't have any callbacks. That's like, ugh, you know, you Mm -hmm. can't have a door that doesn't close or latch or something. You can't have cracks in your crown molding after it's installed, you know, that kind of stuff. And so you come up with systems to protect yourself against each one of those eventualities. And and after a while, you know, I, I realized, wow, this is something maybe other people aren't doing. Maybe they're not making cut lists for baseboard and crown holding and stuff like that, you know. And so it all became part of the overall system, you know, that I was teaching guys on our crew. And it, it was just kind of like a natural progression to start doing it in articles. Yeah. This yeah. is when people read. This is, this is a long, long time <laughs> yeah. ago, you know, when people actually read things, you
0: know? Well, Gary, yeah. it seems like you did move along with the times pretty well. Like, it, I mean, just hearing that Richard found you on YouTube and, uh, you know, found your old videos like that. I mean, that's cool that you, you jumped from writing articles to then making videos. What was it in your mind that that kind of signaled that change? or Or how did you know to jump to... To video making
3: i started just writing and then um fine home building when i did my first articles those lock lock set articles they sent a photographer out and i was just um entranced you know with the lighting the the polaroid camera that he used to check take polaroids to check the lighting and the and the and the slide film that they were using the Kodachrome at that time or whatever the Fuji whatever we were using and he had to take it down to the photo place and have it have it you know all <laughs> you know so we could see the slides it was just such a trip you know and so I really got into photography and and that helped me with the articles not with the fine holding ones because they always sent an editor out to photograph but the JLC articles for sure you had to know how to shoot pictures or you couldn't publish an article you could write great but if you didn't shoot pictures of your work, you had nothing. So, and then I resisted the video for a long time because I said, oh, I spent so many years learning how to take a good photograph. Forget video. I'm not getting into it. But I eventually had no choice and I enjoyed it. You know, it was really fun. It was, I really had a good time doing it.
0: Well, yeah, Gary, you really touched on something that I yeah. think is important. Uh, you know, we're doing a podcast, and we get the question a lot: like, well, you know, you're filming it. Why are you filming a podcast? But we do really have such a visual medium uh, that I think it is helpful to to get some some visual aids in it. And so it is funny to hear you say that if you didn't know how to take a photo, you weren't able to produce an article because it is one thing to be able to read about it, but then be able to see it and just be able to put that image in your head. I mean, it is a really helpful uh, tool, especially in the education of carpentry and craft, and it's, it's really crucial.
3: I think human beings are predominantly visual animals, and I know Brent would fully agree with this, because, you know, we see beauty, we, sure, we smell good food, or we feel neat textures and stuff like that, but boy, the eyes, the vision, you know, is, is the predominant sense that guides us, you know, and leads us. And, and video is just such an incredible step, evolutionary, you know, evolutionary teaching that it's just incomparable. I, I can say this people that are really into reading. And I, I share this with Brent, when we're reading, we're actually visualizing and a lot of people that can't read well, or don't enjoy reading. Like my brother's one, he, you know it's just a it's just the way you are you know it's genetic you know it's not because you're smart or stupid or something. It's just some people are able to read and visualize uh imagery of what it is they're reading at the same time using their imagination, totally. and a lot of people aren't, and so video is just so much more effective as a teaching tool
1: than- than writing so when when did you start? falling in love with the past. I mean, that, I think that's a mutual love we both have. And, uh, you've documented and taken so many pictures of these historic buildings. And I know you and I went to the green and green one time, shot some video, but I mean, even the, 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 the older stuff, I mean, when, when did that love start?
3: I like telling this story, but I hate it too, because I always start crying, but I, um, it means an awful lot to me. I had, I went back to school in the, um, late 80s, around 87, 88, I went back to graduate school, and I had a professor who mentored me through the graduate program in English, and I was working full-time and taking one class, you know, a semester, and getting a degree of English, getting a master's in English, which was something I wanted to do when I was a kid, and um, he took me to the Huntington Library once, and I checked out a book on, um, an architecture book, I actually have a copy of it here and the first page in the book was an advertisement an advertisement <laughs> is, you know the way it's pronounced of all of the people that sponsored the book because back then you know in the in the 1700s an author would would pre-sell the book in a sense to a certain number of people and those people were basically sponsors they give them. They give. They forward him the money. They advance him the money for the publication to print it and distribute it. And the list of people that did that were carpenters, joiners, wheelwrights, masons, all the people from our trade. And I thought, God, you know, there was a time when professional tradespeople were really respected. They were some of the most respected people in the community, and that just like wiped me out. It just really had an impact because I always thought I was just kind of like a bum. Like <laughs> my, mother always, my mother always said, only immigrants work with their hands. When are you going to stop you know, using tools and be a general contractor? you know, like you are. <laughs> I'm <laughs> kidding. Just kidding. My mother would have, my mother would have just loved you. Not just because you're so tall, but because <laughs> you don't use tools, you know? <laughs> and my brother, my brother and I, we couldn't get away from the tools. You know, we were like, it was just so much fun to make something. No
1: doubt.
2: And to,
3: the, you know, just the, the fulfillment of, of, being able to actually, you know, trim out a house or do a coffered ceiling, you know, or something really crazy, it was just too much. It was it was a it was like I've said this before, it was like a drug.
1: You started touring historic houses. You started going around and kind of asking the, you know, the the museum director and said, Hey, can I come check out this stuff, take some pictures, right? Is that what happened?
3: I I finished my degree in English. And almost immediately having been visiting the Huntington library, researching my degree for my degree, I did a, a, a master's thesis on uh, comparing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to paradise, John Milton's paradise lost, you know, oh, wow, <laughs> not, not very, not very, you know, like uh resonant or something with carpentry, but, but um, I finished the degree and I had kind of established a relationship with the Huntington library as a reader. I had a, I had a rare books reader card that allowed me to go inside their reader, their rare books, you know, department and check out books that, you know, you had to wear white gloves. They had these white cardboard stands. You put your books in. Oh, yeah. There were no pens allowed in the room. It was really just extraordinary. And I started researching mantelpieces because of a client who had asked me to design a mantelpiece piece for them. And I knew when I built it that it just looked like crap, you know. <laughs> I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand why. And and that really got me. That really got me. The mantelpiece, the, the mantelpieces and researching them and looking at old books from the, you know, from the early 1900s and the 1800s and the 1700s on, on how to design a mantelpiece was just eye-opening. Just, and that's what got me into architecture. I. I was like you, you know, there was a point where it bugged me that I couldn't identify certain architectural styles because I didn't know anything. Mm. And so that whole world opened up to me through books.
2: That and, is awesome. And then
3: I thought, wow, well, I'm going to do a book on mantelpieces. Yeah. And that's when I started contacting museums and historic homes.
2: Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who build a mantle today and it looks like crap and they just go with it yeah <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> they, they don't oh, yeah they don't care about like the beauty of it and that that's kind of a question that's been on my mind um i want to ask you is like what is your opinion on the state of craft today as far as carpentry and what i mean is like how do you feel about the foam moldings the the mdf you know the kind of what we believe are like inferior materials like how do, what's your opinion on those things
3: i think first i think um you said people don't really care if it looks good i think people do i think even the guys who don't seem interested in learning would like to know how to build a, a mantelpiece say that looks better mm-hmm. they just don't know either they don't know how to find that information or they're not motivated enough to learn right so we kind of we can kind of cross them off our list you know what i mean right <laughs> because there's no way you can help there's no way you can help them but yeah um I I what you're also were asking about materials and stuff kind of fits into that same um, paradigm or that same subject matter. You know, you don't have a choice in a way you have to use MDF moldings because how many of our jobs are dollar driven? You know what I mean? Everybody's on a budget. You can't afford to go use solid wood everywhere. MDF is so much. So God, it saves so much money.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: so you gotta be good. You gotta be, um fluent with using materials that you'd prefer not to but require different kinds of installation techniques like i always learned that you could not cope mdf molding i just we didn't even try it you Mm -hmm. know it was just ridiculous because you cope when you cope molding that leading edge is always a little bit longer so it that it butts in tight you know against the previous piece that's butt cut and it Yeah, and it crumbles, right? (laughs) That's what we learned. That's what all of us have figured out. So what do you do? You don't, you miter everything. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're mitering MDF and you just glue it once and you put your pieces together, your miters open up. So you learn the hard way, oh, I've got to double glue this. I've got to put a layer of glue on first just to prime that crap. So, cause it sucks (laughs) up the glue so fast. And then I got to put on another layer of glue to actually adhere the two pieces together. So I feel like – and the same with um, phypron or, or polyurethane. I don't even know if phypron still exists, but polyurethane moldings and stuff. It's the same stuff. You know, what kind of adhesive do you, do you use? You know, what kind of – can you use polyurethane adhesive or can you – et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's all these lessons you have to learn. And, and what's kind of cool in a way is it's separating the wheat from the chaff. There are so many things we need to learn, and if you're not willing to to take that risk, if you're not willing to admit your vulnerability and say, hey, I don't know, I need to learn how, then you're not going to become an advanced carpenter. You're not going to lead the trade. You're not going to succeed really with modern materials and, and all kinds of stuff. So like this goes right to house wrap and, and flashings and sealants that are compatible or incompatible. You know, there's so many issues in construction these days that
1: in order to be good, you've got to really keep up with the technology. Like, are you encouraged by the state of craft with Carpenter? Or are you, you know, you, you have a negative view of it? Where Where are you at on that? I would say I'm a little bit
3: more on the positive side than you are, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Recognizing that you have, since I met you, you know, you've been on this like mission to turn the tide, and and every time I meet you and speak with you, and even just a few months ago when I saw you in Texas, you know, it was the same, Brent. You know, like I'm losing, kind of like you had this like this like your mission was so motivated, partly because you felt like you were losing, you know, what I mean? you were losing the fight or something, but I kind of. Look at Instagram and YouTube. As look at the look at the massive change that's occurred in our industry. There are so many people that were out there all along. That, like I said earlier, about that guy, the guys with the metal piece that really just don't know any better, but they want to know. They just don't know how to find out. Now, today, it's so much easier to find out. You know that stuff is so much more available, and and I think it's really So cool because the guys who are providing really good information on YouTube and and Instagram, they've got hundreds of thousands of followers. And that is such a sign, it's such a signal of all right, there's somebody that's truly valuable that's offering some really good information, you know. Yeah, sometimes you gotta be careful, you gotta sift through a little bit. Sometimes it's not cutting edge, you know? (laughs) Sometimes it's flat wrong. But Hey, you know, I've written articles and published stuff that was flat wrong, too. You know, you can't, you know, you can't, you can't beat yourself up for making mistakes, you know. But anyway, Absolutely. I think we're on, let's call it the road, the road to recovery. If that's the way, you know, I mean, describing how you've always felt like, oh, my God, you know, we're, we're in the pit or something. Well, I think we're on the road to recovery and just what you're doing right now. I mean, I saw you struggle so much trying to put together a television program, and you finally did, and it was awesome. It was hilarious. It was entertaining, but I never really felt like you were achieving your mission, your goal, which was doing what you're doing now, you know, of, of opening people's eyes up so that they can appreciate the history and, the, and learn how to really truly study the craft that they're
1: that their careers dependent on. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, no, no, no. I I love your positivity. I love your, uh, I love you. I've known you a long time. I'm 57 years old. I get to say that to people that, you know, I love what you do for carpentry. I love what you, I love your friendship. And so I appreciate you saying all that. It is I probably do. <laughs> uh pine over the the pain of, of 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 the lost art of building too much. And so I really appreciate uh you saying that. That's is, that's is very kind.
3: I think that Brent is succeeding and he's finally feeling it. You can see it.
0: Yeah, it, it is fun Gary to hear you say uh all of that. Uh just being his son and being able to hear a lot of the um I it's, I have my eyes open in seeing what is wrong and what what's missing in craft today, and uh, you know the production builders who are doing it wrong a thousand times to the craftsmen who are doing it right. You know five times for every, or maybe one time to every thousand times that they're doing it wrong. Uh, it is fun to hear your positivity and um, to to be reminded of the fact that there is another side out there who of people who are doing it right. And, uh, you know, I, I think I get in my head, uh, a little bit of that perfectionist mentality where it's like, ah, oh, man, it is really frustrating to hear about all these builders who really just care about the bottom line. Um, but then to be reminded of, you know, people are visual people and if they're seeing the craft that's out there and good craft and what it looks like, that does start to change the tide a little bit and start to to move it in the right direction. So I do like your, your assessment As, yeah. that we're on the road to recovery. Um, maybe not there yet, but I, but I am curious uh, if you would have any insight into what would help us continue down that road of recovery, what will help us continue to take the next step uh, in the process to, to recovering Build in America?
3: I think um, two things, and the first thing I, I've got to say is you know, I, I gave all these kudos and stuff and applause to Instagram and YouTube, but there's a risk there, too, of, of misinformation like there is in every other part of our culture. You know, I got an email or sorry, a, a DM from uh, Dan Parrish from, Milding, from Millworks by Design the other day, and it was a, uh, he copied me a video that he'd found on Instagram of a guy who, you know, we probably all know, but I'm not going to mention his name. And he has hundreds of thousands of followers. And he was demonstrating in his Instagram video how to install a window. And he had this really interesting technique. And he showed how to do it. He never once, um, you know, like checked the situation out. He didn't level the sill in the rough opening. He didn't install a camp strip. He he, um, didn't really check the function of the window. He put fasteners through the four corners and checked to make sure it was plumb and level. He never, ever once talked about control lines, you know, benchmark lines, about getting the head of his window, you know, level and aligned with the heads of the doors or the other windows. And I think Frank's already on to what you know I'm talking about. And I know I know Fred is. Boy, when you come on that job as a trim guy, and none of the casing lines up, whoa! So that kind of stuff we have to. Um, that's a good example of. The kind of thing we have to really watch for and in a way i guess it's going to require okay here here's what it's going to require there's a two-part answer to this so i'm really sorry it's going to take me this long to answer this
0: no i love it this is great
3: okay it's going to require trust and i hate to sound kind of woo woo but in order to um make mistakes and learn from them you have to be willing to accept vulnerability you know you have to trust yourself that you're going to be okay no matter what happens you know (laughs) and that that kind of leads to my next point is we have to be more willing we have to be less a bunch of haters and more a bunch of appreciators in a way we have to be able to answer that video that dan sent me Somebody has to be able to answer that video like immediately and say, well, wait, 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 you know, when, make sure you people who are watching this or, or tell that guy or reach out to that fellow and say, wait, shoot another video right away and make sure you show them how to do this and this because otherwise, you know, you're, you're doing a disservice. And that's what I always felt was the only real sin that a carpenter or a teacher especially could commit, and that's teaching somebody how to do something that's wrong. And and you know, you gotta you gotta like I said, I've done it. You gotta be willing to say, Oh god, I really screwed that up. I'm so sorry. Don't do that, don't use that technique I showed you two years ago. Here's a much smarter way of doing it, you know, and you have to be willing. You have to be willing to trust that you'll be okay in order to accept that kind of vulnerability and that kind of criticism. And I think that's one thing. The second thing is it's the end users, the buyers, the homeowners that drive the budget. And yeah, sometimes it's the contractors who don't have the imagination or whatever to, to um, educate their clients. And I know Brent is going to say, God, no kidding. You know, 90% <laughs> of my job is is showing them why they should do this instead of saving 20 bucks and doing that, you know. And I think, that's, that's, that's just such a huge thing that's missing because all we've seen are these television programs that show you how to remodel your house in 30 minutes, you know, and that's a huge disservice to the entire industry. So that's part of the lesson we have to help end users, homeowners learn how they can be more comfortable in a smaller home, fewer square feet, without the huge bells and whistles and with true quality instead of crap, and that's basically it. You know, like, boy, you're going to be much happier in a 2,200 or a 2,400 square foot home with solid core doors than you are, and and true moldings, you know, and 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 some kind of architectural style that's that's human, that that reflects <laughs> what you love yourself, than you are going to be in some big huge box with eight oaks hollow doors and mdf molding. you know that's five thousand square feet preach and it gary and eventually your kids are going to move out you're going to end up living in that place with just you and your husband you know or something right. like god
2: can we have you, you know? as a permanent guest yeah. here <laughs> <laughs> you're like exactly on the same page as us yeah that's awesome yeah.
0: it is fun I, i've been watching a lot of videos recently on uh the feel of a home and uh there it's that Uh, it's the way furniture is set up in a room. I forget the name of it, but feng shui, The there, there are all these videos kind of explaining, uh, how you feel situated in a room and how you, and it's, it's usually guys sending in videos of, I've got an apartment room, uh, apartment building, but their room is like, you know, let's say 300 square feet, uh, just tiny. And they're like, how do I organize my bed? How do I organize all these things? And all the concepts that they're talking about are, are just like how to make this room more comfortable um, because of its size and everything like that. And this guy will transform a place and make it look uh, so much more comfortable because you walk into this room and it's crowded. There's no room. There's a bed that's taking up the whole room. And then he just changes like three little things and it makes it better. Um, and you would think like when you walk in, you, oh, you just need more space. And then he reorganizes the room and you're like, oh, it could have been done in that room and it, it's great the way you set it up. And it's kind of the same idea, obviously not to that extreme because you can deal with a you know 2,500 square foot house versus a 8,000 square foot house um, and be so much more comfortable just in the way that you set it up. And I think those moldings, um, if you take the budget that would have been used for square feet and put it into things that speak to your soul, And speak to, you know, just when you walk into a room, like you're saying, just common design throughout a house, man, it is so much more comfortable and it is so much nicer. And a room, a house can be made better um, than you think. And and all it takes is knowing the right steps and knowing the right information to to be able to put it together and go, oh, wow, this is way better and way cooler. So I love what you're saying. It
3: opens up, that opens up that opens up so many, you know, really important subjects. One is if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know how to capture that feeling, you know, that makes you comfortable, then you need a guide, you know, and, 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 a, and a, in other words, you need a, a designer or an architect or something like that, or, or you need a, a finished carpenter who really knows this game, because really to tell you the truth, it's the finished carpenters. Amen. Job.
1: Amen, brother. Peach it. And,
3: and, and i and I'm not exaggerating at all. It's a flat out truth. And, and you need clients who are also more trusting, who are, like I said, back to that vulnerability thing, you know, who, gosh, you know, when I first learned how to go steelhead fishing and how to row my boat through whitewater, I didn't just jump in the boat and, and <laughs> head down river. I got a guy, you I, know? Got this. I got a fishing guy who's taught me how to do that stuff, you know, and I, I still go out with him because he's still teaching me, you know. And it's the same with everything. I think it's, it's the same with absolutely everything. If you can't figure out how to do it on your own, if you're not comfortable, then find somebody who, who will make you comfortable. And now back to, you know, you really started my engine here. Back to what you were talking about, about comfort and, and, and finding comfort. I, Having spent over 20 years researching and writing this book on mantelpieces, I have learned that um, the classical orders are not there as paradigms for what's right and what's wrong. They're there as examples of what makes people feel comfortable and what makes them have a sense of proportion primarily, not just design. It's not, It's the classical orders aren't there so you can pick between the Corinthian and the Ionic and the Doric. (laughs) They're there so that you can pick a simple, a kind of size, a a sense of proportion. Do you like stuff that's really heavy and stout? Then you're going to want to work with the proportions that are predominant in the Doric and the Tuscan order. Do you like really light Stuff that's more modern and feminine kind of in a sense, then you're going to want to work with proportions that are dominant in the Corinthian order and the composite order. And when I'm saying proportions, I mean, how big is this compared to that? That's what I mean by proportion, ratio. you know How, how big around is the column compared to the height of the column? And so so what, everything I've talked about in the last couple of minutes about the, about the classical orders is way over the top, and people are going to go, Oh, my God, there goes another guy off on, you know, some stupid tangent about the classical orders. But if you're designing a mantelpiece and you want it to succeed and you want it to please your homeowners, you've got to know, like, do they like the heavy look, the masculine look, or do they like the lighter feminine look? And that's going to tell you whether you should be relying on proportions from one order over the other. And that's going to determine how wide the pilasters are how tall the entablature is, and how big the crown molding in the living room is. I mean, it gets down to, and Brent does such a great job of breaking this stuff down. Like how tall should the baseboard be? You know, that's a really huge question. And that is one of those little defining features that helps someone feel comfortable in their home. So like one person may be really comfortable in a, like a, a kind of a um, Tudor style home, you know, real masculine, heavy, and another might be really comfortable in a modern home that has no baseboard, you know, or in a home that has streamlined base, you know, that kind of thing. And your responsibility as a finished carpenter or designer is to identify, first of all, not what pleases you, but what is going to make your client feel comfortable. and we may as well get right down to what that means it means safe it means what makes them feel what's familiar to them what and familiar is like the base word is family this is all about safety it's about you know what makes somebody come into their room after being at work all day and will be able to relax well safety comfort familiarity You know, that all of that.
1: What I love about the classical system is that it introduces a human scale and that human scale based on the human body. When it's projected onto the walls, it does make you feel safe. It does make you feel, you know, at home. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing.
3: I was just going to say, that's why it's what makes people feel comfortable because it's familiar. And, and I'm so glad Brent broke in and said that because That's why after 2,000 or more years, we're still, you know, depending, what, 3,000 years, we're still dependent on the the classical orders because they encapsulate and they reflect human scale and they make us feel comfortable.
0: Yeah. It's why you can walk into a Gothic cathedral and feel like you're uh, just a tiny person, just staring up at these vast, you know, structures. And then at the same time, you can walk into... uh, you know, a a small, like a home, like a colonial style home and feel like, oh, this is like a place where I'm supposed to hunker down and like have, have a, have a nap, you know, it's (laughs) a little, uh, comfort, you know, the, I was watching the Lord of the Rings recently, the Hobbit hole makes you feel small and comfortable. And then the, you know, the giant castles and everything are like, oh my gosh, you're craning your neck up at them, and you're just watching it on a movie, but it explains that scale
3: think about that for a second think about that for a second because it fits in perfectly with what i was saying when you go inside of a gothic cathedral who's the owner who's the homeowner who's who's the who inhabits that god and it should be it should be you know like celestial it should be it should rise to the heavens you know it should move it should move you with drama and space you know and that's its purpose that makes you that gives you a sense of comfort and safety, and a castle. Who's the homeowner? The homeowner's some feudal lord or whatever who who wants the respect of his of his you know uh, the people that live on his property on his land right and are supporting him in a sense who he is actually supporting in a way you know yes and so that's the purpose that's the purpose of his home totally you, you get it it's like so simple you know when you break it down into the simple. Is. Who's it for? You know?
0: Well and I feel like this is the missing piece where it just makes sense. Whenever you lay it out like this, it just it makes sense. And uh it's really cool.
1: Gary, what is uh what is next for you? You've got this book that you and I have been talking about. You went and took pictures for the for the mantle book, the the Magnum opus. Is that what we're gonna call that?
3: You and I have been talking about this book for the whole time I've been working on it, you know? And you've been waiting for it to come out. I think I have. So you can write one yourself. That's better, you know,
1: <laughs> no, I, but, I, I have but, been, um, I've been waiting for that book, but you've got the photography finished. You've got, you know, you're, you're, it's pretty much ready. You're looking for a publisher, but you know, that's, that's, is that taking up most of your time or what do you, you know, you're still teaching, you're still doing these things.
3: I, the only thing I'm still teaching a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm still doing occasional events. I'm, I'll be at the IBS show. Um, so I'll, I'll see you there probably but um I, I, I don't go to I don't teach too many of them I professionally that's about all I'm doing now is trying to finish that book i've I've gone through it a complete edit of the book in the meantime I'm still looking for a publisher but but God, you know this has taken so long it's uh it's a act of patience it's an exercise in patience, just yeah. like carpentry, you know
0: well. Uh, that's really cool, Gary, excited for that book to come out. Um, I don't know when that will be. Don't want to, no pressure there, but, uh, <laughs> we, we run a thank you for your time. We want to respect your time. Uh, we've been going here for an hour. It's just been awesome, uh, hearing from you, learning from you and, uh, just getting to hear your take on crafting in America right now and, uh, hearing your story. So, uh, we would love to, to point people to more of your things. Uh, so is there anything people should be on the lookout for or If you want to plug anything, you're more than welcome to. I know you were humble before and said you didn't want to, but you're such a resource. We want to make sure people know where to find you.
3: All of the videos that I produce are on the This Is Carpentry uh, YouTube channel. And so you can find all of that at This Is Carpentry on uh, YouTube. And you you can find me on Instagram. I go on maybe once a week (laughs) to, (laughs) to follow people and to post stuff, but I'm not very active. And my Instagram handle is GaryMcats1. And that's it. That's pretty much all I do these days. Yeah, and I can't thank you enough for these. I can't thank you guys enough for inviting me on.
2: The pleasure is ours. I
3: get an opportunity to to talk with Brent and everything, it's just so thrilling. I'm really tickled to meet everybody, you know, to meet Brent's son and Frank and everything, it's just like, wow, you know. Pretty cool, pretty cool. Gary,
1: you're the best, really appreciate you. Thanks for coming on and we'll have you on again. Thank you, thank you. Take care.